Welcome to the Productivity Show by Asian Efficiency, helping you do more and be better. And now here's your host, Zachary Sexton. Hey, this is Mike Schmitz. I'm actually filling in for Zachary this week. And also joining me this week is author Chris Bailey. How's it going, Chris? Good, man. How are you? <laughs> Doing great. I'm Good. excited to have you on. Uh, Chris, for those of you who aren't familiar with him, has done a lot of really impressive stuff. <laughs> I'm not going to read his, his whole bio because there's the a lot in here. The bio is like a thousand words long, let's be honest. Like if, <laughs> if we did a word count, I don't know. It's a text expander snippet. So, you know, you, you can make it as long as you want. You don't have to type it out each time. <laughs> That's right. I'll, I'll just tease out some of the, the more impressive things in here to, to me. Uh, you were named by the TED blog behind the TED Talks, the most productive man you'd ever hope to meet which is pretty high praise. Uh, but really the reason that we've got you on today is this is a follow-up to the previous episode you had recorded, which was episode 35. And in that episode, you had just had your injury and oh, you were in the process man. of writing your book, The Productivity Project, which I have read and I have to say that I absolutely love. So a lot of the, uh, the questions that I've got for you today are going to kind of go along with the book, the content that's in it, and then also the process, if that's cool with you. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you want. It, man, that injury takes me back. You know, I, I you know, the interviews are before and leading up and, and around the book, they're kind of a blur. But I remember my last uh, appearance on this show because I think it was like a few weeks after that injury. We might uh, have even had to postpone it a little bit. So be, because I broke my leg, I shattered my ankle and my leg bone and the recovery curve was six or nine months. But Luckily, you know, I, I figured if if this productivity project was worth its weight, you know, uh, the tactics that I learned during it would have allowed me to ship the book ahead of schedule. So thankfully, uh, still at the end of the day, instead of I think my publisher gave me 30 or 40 weeks uh, and I managed to get out the book in 24 weeks, um, you know, from from start to finish, given the tactics in the book. So thankfully that worked out. It could have easily gone the other way, I think. As well. <laughs> right. it's, it's amazing how long the recovery curve of these injuries are. You know, it broke, I broke my leg and it took like half a year still, still with a cane to, to get over it. But that's a big tangent slash side note. <laughs> yeah. Well, you didn't just have the injury. You had the injury while you were abroad, correct? It happened in Ireland, if I remember correctly. Yeah. After a few pints of Guinness. I was walking, <laughs> I was walking home from or back to the Airbnb I was just staying at. And it was in February, the, the middle of February. And I took a steep fall down a cobblestone sidewalk in the Irish countryside outside of Dublin in a town called Hoth. And I remember lying there. Um, and you know, I, I tried to get up, but then I put some weight on that foot and I just crumbled back to the ground. So, you know, fast forward, to being in an Irish, I think this is my first or second day on the trip too. I was a head of schedule in writing the book. And, you know, I took this nasty fall and wasn't sure if I was covered under insurance. Um, I wasn't sure, you know, it would have cost, I think, 30 or 40,000 euros just to kind of get back home and, and pay for the hospital bill. But luckily, I was covered under my girlfriend's insurance at the time. Um, so, so made it through that obstacle. But really what, what helped me out in that process, you know, there, there's this rule of three that J.D. Meyer talks about. I, I talk about it quite a bit, where at the start of the day, you set three intentions for what you want to accomplish in the day ahead. And, you know, you, you think, OK, by the time this day is done, what three things will I want to have accomplished? Taking into account how much how many meetings you have that day, how much focus, how much energy you'll have, too. And this is really the first productivity tactic that I returned to when I was laying in that hospital bed with no energy and no focus to do anything was at the start of the day, you know, with that limited amount of energy, set three intentions um, to say, OK, I want to walk around the ward a little bit, not walk, but kind of hobble around the, the ward <laughs> here a little bit with my, with my walker. Um, and then, you know, kind of gained every single day um, a bit of energy and a bit more focus. Um, so a few days after that, I set an intention to just answer a few emails and catch up with my assistant um, and, and slowly starting to build off of that. So it, it just shows that 
these productivity tactics, the the best ones um, are are the ones you keep. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that was actually one of my my questions was from that injury. You already talked about the the rule of of three. And yeah. for the people who aren't familiar with the book, what's great about about your book is you have this broken down into short little chapters which identify specific topics or strategies in a particular area. And then you've got at the beginning of every chapter, the estimated read time. And then at the end of every chapter, uh, an exercise to help people apply this to their lives. So the rule of three was one of those. And that was one of the things that I really got out of, of reading your book was that rule of three. And, and I've applied that to my life. I absolutely love it. But from that injury, other than the rule of three, which you just talked about, what were any, uh, lessons that you learned from that whole experience that you'd be willing to share with our listeners? Yeah, no, I'll share anything. You know, one of the big ones was the power of gratitude. You know, so often, and and I've fallen into this trap so many uh, more times than I can count. You know, we have the tendency to invest in our productivity and just push us uh, to push ourselves just harder and harder and harder without taking a step back and patting ourselves on the back every once in a while. And in a way, wanting to become more productive implies on some level that you're not entirely satisfied with where you're at already. And mm-hmm. it's kind of a, it's a tough uh, thing to, to reconcile, but I found that to be the case in investing in my own productivity. The more I invested in my productivity and the more productive I became, you know, productive, not in the sense of just doing more, 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 faster, 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 but actually accomplishing more every day and pushing myself to get there. You know, the harder I was on myself, because in order to get to that level, you have to push yourself. But at the same time, you know, I, I think the best kind of balance that we can have with this sort of stuff is to constantly cultivate how happy we are, because there are some tactical things that we can do while never being truly satisfied with where we're at. And I think that's kind of the balance that is worth striking. So, you know, I I remember, and this was kind of a pretty counterintuitive thing that happened that I experienced, but I remember at a certain point in that injury and I was in the hospital, I think for, you know, in the ER for about a week, I, I thought it was just like a, like a broken leg, no big deal, but it's a, it's a long drawn out process. But I remember being in that kind of mental haze, becoming grateful and maybe it was the morphine, but just becoming grateful (laughs) for everything in my life. Um, and it might sound corny, but grateful for my girlfriend because, uh, she was who I had insurance through and grateful for the family that I had that constantly, um, you know, kept in touch with me and grateful for the people that drove me to the hospital. Cause I was, you know, not to bring things a bit too into the dark territory here, but I, I was, it was the Irish countryside. And so I was laying there for a few hours shouting for help before somebody eventually heard me and, and came and got me and, and got an ambulance. And so, you know, it was all these people, even though I was in a crappy place at the time, I still had so much to be grateful for. And, you know, a lot of people speak as, you know, gratefulness is the same thing as abundance and whatever the situation we're in, if we're grateful for where we're at, we're going to be happy. And so, you know, simple tactics to cultivate your happiness, like recalling things you're grateful for every day. Every night, as my girlfriend and I are falling asleep, we recall three things that we're grateful for uh, from that day, from that week in general, in each other, whatever it might be. But the research shows that doing this trains our brain into a pattern of thinking more positively and looking out for the opportunities around us. And, you know, doing simple things like, uh, you know, going out of our way to do something good for a stranger. You know, these tactics there, they seem on the surface to be almost unnecessary. But I think as we invest in our productivity, they become borderline essential because of how much happier they can make us and and how they kind of shift the denominator of productivity where it's not about uh, pushing ourselves to past our limits, but rather being kind to ourselves as we strive to actually accomplish more. Yeah, I, I really like that. I really like that you brought up uh, the gratitude thing, because one of the things that I got out of your book uh, near the end, I believe you said that people are the reason for productivity, or maybe I restated what you said uh, as I <laughs> synthesize it in my own head, but <laughs> gratitude is a big piece of that. My wife and I have family meetings once a week where we've got four kids at home, so it can be a little bit crazy, 
but we yeah. create that that time and that's something that we've implemented in the last several months is that gratitude piece where we specifically say I'm I'm grateful to you for this specific thing yeah. and it totally changes the whole atmosphere and the dynamic you know we could have had the worst day ever but as soon as you start expressing gratitude like all that stuff just melts away it really so does that's yeah really, and really really important and and this lesson became especially apparent you know I did all these experiments during the productivity project but one of them was to live in total isolation for 10 days. So cutting myself off from people, um, not even the people at Starbucks. You know, I, I lived in the basement for, for an entire 10 days. And the same thing happened in that experiment. I, I started to become grateful for, for every person in my life because, you know, people aren't, um, you know, they, they give us so much motivation um, to accomplish more. We're more engaged with our work when we work with people that we care about and feel a bond with. But I would argue that, you know, if we woke up in the morning and we're the only person left on the planet, it wouldn't matter how productive we were if we had nobody to share the fruits of that productivity with. And so that, that's the the point that I try to make in the book is that, and you know, people aren't just what will make us more productive, but they're the reason that we should strive to be productive in the first place. And it, it's funny because we get so caught up in the idea of productivity that we don't take a step back to think about, okay, why are we doing this? And what's driving our behavior in this direction? And mm -hmm. the more you do that, I think the more purpose you have and the more of a drive you have um, in actually getting more done over the course of the day too. Yeah, ab absolutely. I think it was Peter Drucker said, nothing is so useless as to do efficiently that which should not be done at all. Yeah. And you have, yeah. <laughs> have to have to have your why, um, which I would argue is, is people. And you mentioned uh, the experiments yeah. and, and you got a little bit into the one where you, uh, you put yourself in isolation for 10 days and you did a lot of crazy experiments like that in your book. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, I mean, you talked about that one, but was there one experiment in particular that was your favorite? Favorite in what way? Just kind of in general or in practice? Well, or Which one you enjoyed the most? Because my follow-up question to that is which one was the most meaningful for you? So you okay. can kind of answer that any, any way or order that you want. <laughs> yeah, the, the one I enjoyed the most was being a total slob for a week. And so for, <laughs> for a full week, um, you know, I, I, I only showered twice this week, which was kind of disgusting, but I made sure to order takeout at least twice a day, uh, watch several hours of TV every day. Uh, I didn't meditate. I didn't work out. I didn't do anything that would cultivate how much energy I had. Um, just, <laughs> you know, worked on the couch and of course trying to be as productive as possible within these conditions. But that was probably my favorite because, you know, so often we forget that we need to take a step back to recharge and, you know, that allows us to accomplish more because we only have so much physiological energy in our brains. And once that's depleted, our productivity is toast. And so this experiment, you know, the first few days of it were pretty fun, but then it got kind of disgusting after that because I didn't want to see one more bag of Doritos and I really wanted to to work out again but and meditate but I really couldn't um so that was probably my favorite in practice the the most meaningful one oh man in, in kind of a weird way one that comes to mind for that um on top of the living in total isolation for 10 days was waking up at 5 30 every morning for for three months and so I'm I'm a night owl by, you know, by, by the way I'm wired. You know, if I sit back to chart how much energy I have naturally over the course of the day, I have the most energy late at night. You know, I, I stay up, I'm, I'm like Barack Obama. I stay up to like one, two, three in the morning, just writing and, and researching and, and doing what I'm passionate about. Um, but th this experiment forced me to restructure my life around this one ritual because there's this whole uh, notion or that the early bird gets the worm and that earlier risers are so much more productive than the rest of us. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to put this to the test. And, you know, I, I had the routine that productivity dreams are made of, you know, I woke up at five 30 to uh, make a coffee. And then I worked out at six. I went to the gym. I planned out my entire day when I was working out. At 7, 7.30, I made a huge, healthy breakfast. I meditated. I showered. I reconnected to the internet at 8 a.m. because I disconnected between 8 p 
p.m. and 8 a.m. from the internet, which I still do today. I read, then I started working, and I felt so accomplished before the rest of the world even woke up. But then I realized that I absolutely hated the ritual. There was no <laughs> routine that I adopted over the course of the productivity project that I hated more than that because I had to go to sleep when my friends wanted to hang out. I had to you know, put my life on hold late at night. Um, I, I couldn't work late into the night if I was on a roll and I had a crazy amount of energy. I had to pack it in so I could wake up and do this stupid ritual in the morning. Um, and the, it showed me, you know, it was meaningful in the sense that it showed me that not every productivity tactic is worth putting into practice. You know, there are some that will actually add meaning to our life and some that won't. And oftentimes, the idea of a change is sexier than what it's actually like to make that change a reality. And waking up early is especially true um, with, with that idea. You know, the idea of being an early riser and meditating and working out in the morning, it, it sounds and it feels so romantic. But, you know, it, it showed me that it's worth questioning the value of these productivity tactics, because frankly, not all of them will be worth it. You know, it, it, in the book, I kind of filtered down all the lessons I'd had covered over the course of the project into the 25 that, you know, of the hundreds actually let me accomplish more of the course of the day. But there's a book that's 600 pages long, maybe double the size of stuff that didn't work and didn't actually progress my work and my life and how much energy and focus and time I had forward. And so, you know, it, it really in a kind of a weird way, that experiment was meaningful in that it showed me that not all productivity tactics are meaningful, that some are worth it and, and others aren't. I like that. So you have to kind of identify your own definition of not only productivity, but also what is what is working for you and being okay to accept the fact that this particular strategy is is not working for me. And, and in the book, you've got lots of different strategies. And I have to admit that I had that same response when I read some of these, like, well, no, I can see where that might be valuable for somebody, but that doesn't sound like it would really work for me. So yeah. uh, everything in the book, though, you're saying, if I'm hearing you right, these are the ones that actually you gleaned something from, and then you've got a whole bunch of other stuff that didn't work, correct? <laughs> yeah, because, and that's the thing about productivity advice is it's one thing to read about productivity advice or like listen to a podcast with you know a few dudes talking about productivity advice, but at the end of the day, you have to make all that time back and then some, or else you're just looking at or reading or listening to productivity porn. And and there's a lot of that out there, you know, stuff that's sexy to read about. Like it's, it's so fun to read about people's daily schedules and their habits and their routines. But if doing that doesn't allow us to accomplish more, it's just entertainment, right? And, mm -hmm. and so I, I found so much of that over the course of the productivity project, um, waking up early, being one of the main myths out there. And indeed, the research backs that up and shows that there is zero difference between somebody's socioeconomic standing, uh, somebody who wakes up early and somebody who wakes up later. And it makes sense because if two people live the exact same life, but they just wake up at different times of the day, you know, that that will uh, it, it won't matter what time they wake up at. What matters more is how much energy they naturally have and and the constraints that we have in our lives. And I, I think ultimately that's the reason why some tactics work well for some people and, and not for others is we all have a different set of constraints that are embedded in our life. Um, an entrepreneur, she can choose you know exactly how she spends every minute of her day. And so the rule of three might work incredibly well for her. Whereas a factory worker, you know, who has no control over what he does over the course of the day, it won't work for. And so we have to take into and, you know, waking up early is another example of that, because if we have, you know, you, you mentioned you had four kids and, and a family waking up early might be the most powerful tactic out there, especially <laughs> if you have a, a chronotype that where you're wired to have more energy during those hours. Whereas for a, a bum like me with, with a girlfriend, but no family and no kids, you know, staying up late into the night might be a better tactic. So, you know, I, I think on some level, productivity is a process of understanding our constraints. And, I, you know, by the way, the rule of three works so well for that reason is when you define your three intentions for the day, you can consider the constraints you have. So if you have a whole day that's stacked full of meetings and you have no 
uh, autonomy that day, you can allow those meetings to inform your intentions, but also, uh, you know, inform the ten- intentions that you'll set the next few days when you actually have more flexibility with how you spend your time. Yeah, that's that's good. I like what you're saying about having the the constraints. Uh, I just heard the name of the law, but I forget I forget who it was named after. But basically, a task will take as long as the amount of time that you give it. Yeah, which, Parkinson's law. Yeah, Parkinson's law. And you actually had a specific <laughs> experiment, which I was curious about. You said oh, in the, the book, you said you got just about the same amount of work done during a 20-hour week as when you worked a 90-hour week. Yeah. Which, like, I, I get it from a, a, a statistical perspective. I understand that, like, the quality of the work drops after, or I think it was roughly 40 hours is all the data that I've seen. But uh, yeah. would you be willing to share, because you didn't have a whole lot of data around this. Um, how, how close was that? Was it significantly close or was it just like there was obviously diminishing returns or were you really legitimately getting just about the same amount of work done, even though you were working less than one fourth as much when you were yeah. doing the 20 hour weeks versus the 90 hour weeks? Well, first of all, it, it's worth mentioning that I felt four times, four or five times as, as productive, um, in the 90 hour weeks than in the 20 hour weeks, because I was just frankly doing more. And I think this is a trap that a lot of folks fall into is, we have the tendency to look to how busy we are as a proxy for how productive we are. Because frankly, it's difficult to uh, account for how much we accomplish uh, over the course of the day when we do work with our brains rather than with our bodies. You know, you know it's, it's less tangible. It, 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 you can't really reduce it down to a spreadsheet. But uh, I did find that I only accomplished a bit more in the 90-hour weeks than in the 20-hour weeks. And it it was partly because of Parkinson's law. Um, You know, that was why I was so unproductive in the 90-hour weeks because I had maybe realistically about 40 or 50 hours worth of work to do. And I I tended to do more busy work so that that expanded to fit how much time I had available for it. Um, But I think at the same time, the conditions for the 20 hour weeks motivated me to accomplish an incredible amount. And so in a way, the two weeks kind of worked in the middle. I was unproductive in the 90 hour weeks and insanely productive in the 20 hour weeks. Cause you know, for a few reasons, uh, the, the first being that I had no choice, but to step back to work with more intention behind what I was doing, because I didn't have the luxury of working on work that simply wasn't that important and didn't, really hold enough value because you only have 20 hours and you know that's that's only so much time to actually spend on what's meaningful and valuable but at the same time you know when you set a deadline for something like let's say you have a a report that's due at the end of the week um, and, and you force yourself instead of spending an entire day to do it to spend maybe an hour or two this afternoon in order to get that report done um that that kind of artificial deadline will force you to expend more focus and energy instead of more time on your work so that you can accomplish it. And so all these factors kind of played with one another. I was unproductive in the 90-hour weeks because my work expanded because it had the luxury of doing so. We we work, by the way, fewer hours than we think we do. And, and the research backs this mm-hmm. up. Um, you know, one, one study, I think Laura Vanderkam pointed me uh, to these studies, but one study found that people who think they work 75 or more hours a week actually work 55. And people who claim <laughs> to work between, you know, 60 and 64 hours a week actually work 44. So, we overestimate our working hours by about 20. So those 90 hour weeks felt like 180 hour weeks. But, you know, I think it was because they meet in the middle, um, the 90 hour weeks because of Parkinson's law and the 20 hour weeks because I had no choice but to focus deeper on my work and expend more energy on my work, as well as take a step back and think, okay, I only have so much time. I'm not going to waste a single ounce of it. Um, What am I going to get done? Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, you had mentioned in the previous episode, and I, I know you talked about it in the book too, but I don't remember specifically where, w- how you were constantly checking in with yourself to make sure that you were still on point. Basically, just a way of seeing if your in- attention and focus is was where it's supposed to be. Did you ever stack these um, these uh, experiments at all? So like you're talking about the 20-hour weeks, 
that forced you to be intentional. But yeah. a 90 hour week, obviously the tendency is going to be to drift. Did you experiment with applying your checking in theory as you're implementing the 90 hour weeks? Or if you haven't, I guess just how much of a difference do you think that would make? Are you able to overcome a significant amount of the just physical drain can't do this anymore? Or is it so great that that even that wouldn't really help? It, it depends. It's fine. The, the physical drain, it depends on how frequently we have to regulate our own behavior. And so the more self-control we expend over the course of the day, um, and this is usually because our work isn't that motivating or, or that engaging, um, the more frequently we need to take a step back to actually recharge. And so this is why people like, uh, I presume, Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and, and all the greats can work late into the night and, and not really feel the drain. And it's because when you enjoy your work, you need to regulate your behavior less often to, to continue to focus on your work. And I, I think this was a bit of a, and it, it, it's so difficult to control for this, even though the productivity project was a very much controlled experiment. But I was doing for work over the course of the productivity project what a lot of people do or what, what I used to do for fun. And I find this, it's a challenge <laughs> today uh, to, to actually take a step back from my work because I, I really do enjoy it so much. But it's I think that's something to I don't know if that really answers the question in terms of, of checking in, but I found that you know, breaks are invaluable no matter what you do. But the more you love your job and the more you're naturally driven by your job, the less you need to take a step back to, to actually take some breaks because you simply don't need to recharge in those circumstances. But, you know, ultimately, regardless of the experiment, um, you know, I definitely felt burnt out in those 90 hour weeks and, you know, more energy in the 20 hour weeks because outside of working in the 20 hour weeks, I was cultivating how much energy I had too. you know, by working out, by meditating, by doing it, by eating well, by getting enough sleep. And so these tactics gave me even more energy to approach the experiment with where in the 90 hour weeks, you know, when we throw more time at our work instead of more uh, energy and focus, we have the tendency to cut back on cultivating how much energy we have. So we over caffeinate and then we miss out on sleep and then that affects, you know, our willpower. So we have less control than not order a pizza or Indian food that night. And it kind of <laughs> does a downward spiral uh, when we kind of lose grip over this intentionality. But yeah, that, that, that's what I found. I don't know if that answers the question, but that's that, that was my experience in the project. Yeah, that, no, that, that answers the question. Um, I, I guess basically what I'm getting at is you have the, uh, the three different areas and you've got a sort of Venn diagram on yeah. page 14 of the book, the time, energy, and attention. Uh, I guess really at the heart of that question was, do you see, um, and, and the way that the book is, is written, it seems like all of these experiments are kind of done in, in isolation. So you can really identify what were the contributing factors here, which makes a yeah. lot of sense. But I guess when you're looking at it, big picture, people are a result of their habits. You yeah. know, what you're able to produce, get done as you move towards your goals is, is a, is a result of the habits that you've established. And those habits are going to fall into these different areas, time, energy, and attention. Yeah. Do you, do you feel that like in the 90 hour weeks, in that case, you're probably not doing a great job with, uh, with time, but if you are, are you, are you able to compensate then by focusing a little bit more on attention or, or energy? Um, and really any tips, I guess, for people on how to balance those three. I mean, obviously in the Venn diagram, you've got productivity is the middle. Obviously we yeah. want to achieve the balance, but any like practical tips as you are going through these experiments where you, you realize that maybe the, the experiment wasn't specifically measuring your attention, but you noticed that because I'm doing this experiment, that mm. this, this scale is getting a little out of whack. Yeah. You know, I, I never really zeroed in on one area for individual experiments. So, some of them kind of fell into that where, you know, if I'm doing an experiment to say uh, one, one of them was to gain 15 pounds of muscle over the project, you know, that, that really zeroed in on the energy quadrant. But an experiment like the 90 hour weeks, it really, you know, if I, I make the argument that how productive we are every day is the confluence of how 
well we manage our time, our attention and our energy. Because, mm-hmm. you know, this isn't just like some corny three-step model or something like that. This is the result of me realizing when the project was done, because I guess I wasn't smart enough to realize this in the middle. And, and so often <laughs> it's not until we step back from what we do that we see the value and we're able to, to connect the dots on it. But I realized that every single valuable thing that I experimented with or interviewed somebody about or researched fell into one of these three different categories. And so productivity as a consequence should be the confluence of all three. And an experiment like work in 90 hour weeks, um, it really did. Yeah. Like you said, it did have that overlap where there's, there's a strong connection between our time, our attention, and our energy, uh, especially in terms of how much time we allow ourselves to do something, because it has the same effect as a deadline. When you limit how much time you spend on something, you force yourself to overcompensate by spending more focus and energy on that thing instead. And so it really is impossible to separate all three of these different ingredients because they are interconnected and in so many, frankly, curious ways, you know, mm-hmm. you, you I, and I thought some of these experiments like drinking only water for a month would only affect my energy. But then I realized that, you know, it affects my time, too, because I can't spend time with my friends and that affects my energy as well. And I can't focus as well because caffeine helps with your phone. Fo- so, so they really are interconnected in some interesting ways. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting ways that they interconnect is the whole idea that you present in the book of the biological prime time. Do you yeah. want to kind of unpack that a little bit for those of people yeah, who aren't, so aren't familiar it, with it? Yeah, for sure. This is the idea that not all hours of our work are created equal. There are some hours of our day when we naturally have more energy than in others. And so you see this if you're an early riser, you have more energy first thing in the morning and then you burn out at eight or 10, eight or 9 p.m. Or if you're a night owl like me and you have the most energy at one or two or three in the morning or into the early evening even. And so the idea is that depending on our chronotype, we're all wired differently to have different peak productivity hours. And because our energy per hour is not consistent. Our productivity per hour isn't going to be consistent as well. Uh, in my case, I have the most energy between uh, 10 and noon and 5 and 8 p.m. and then onwards. And so I, I make sure that I do my most productive tasks during those, those hours because simply the most productive tasks in our work, like the three intentions that we set out to do every morning, like the, you know, like the most important tasks in our work, like doing a big presentation, like giving a talk, like working on a deep research project that requires a lot of energy and focus, just as not all hours of our day are created equal, not all tasks in our work are created equal as well. And so when we stack these up and we, you know, uh, do do our most productive tasks in our most productive hours, we can level up and and become that much more productive that way. Um, I, I check my email these days every afternoon at 3 p.m. And it's not because that's some kind of arbitrary time. Uh, it, it's simply because that's when I find I have the least amount of energy and checking email to me isn't a very important task. And so <laughs> by, by by rearranging our day, uh, around how much energy we have, as opposed to how much time we have, we, we can level up and become more productive that way. And again, like we were chatting about, it goes back to the constraints that we have in our work. But at the same time, you know, those should inform how we manage these three ingredients. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And email is one way that people definitely mismanage those ingredients. Oh, email. Oh, man. Uh, you referenced an IBM study in there, which actually I discovered too, as I was working on the escape your email course for Asian efficiency. And some of the statistics that I found regarding email were just ridiculous. I think the Huffington post said that the average U S worker spent 6.3 hours per day dealing with email. And when you couple that, especially with like the biological prime time, obviously you're missing out on a lot of, of productivity, a lot of action that you could be taking towards your yeah. goals. Did you discover the biological prime time prior to the 20 hour uh, work week experiment? Oh man. You know, to be honest, I don't remember. I, 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 I yeah, I, th- I think around the same time, but I, I can't remember the order order of it. 
I'm, I'm sure that it, it doesn't change the the validity of the experiment at all. It would probably just compound the effect that if you really yeah. zeroed in on your biological prime time and limited the amount of time that you devote to your work, you can still get a lot, lot done. But yeah, and now now that you say that, it must have been after because I'm sure if I would have discovered it beforehand, I would have been working between five and eight and between ten and noon. But yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it must have been after, or else I would have been smarter about about that experiment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another thing you said regarding uh, email, which I put into practice, I really like this approach, was the five sentences or less. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was an absolutely brilliant idea. <laughs> yeah, it's a simple idea, but the idea is that you put in your signature, you know, for your benefit and mine, I keep every email I send at three sentences or less or five sentences or less. And you can use that as a cue where if you're about to type some a big ass essay to somebody, you just pick up the phone and and describe your thinking there. And it's it's a good cue to become more social, but at the same time, respect everybody's time. And, and at the start, I thought people would be, you know, upset that I was not giving them the time of day or not, uh, you know, because if somebody writes you an essay, you kind of assume that they expect an essay in return, but then it's just like um, like um, like you're like you have a pen pal rather than a working relationship. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, right. it's um, but yeah, it's a simple rule, and I don't have even have that note in my signature anymore because I figured I don't really need it. Um, I, I just keep <laughs> my email short, and people seem to enjoy that. And you know, it, it, it's it's an artificial limit, just like you know, limiting your work week, or it's like a tweet where it forces you to have more succinct thoughts uh, about whatever it is that you want to express. But it allows you to think clearer at, at the same time that it allows you to um, develop deeper relationships with people and save some time. And, you know, it, it's funny that we, we spend a lot of time on email, but we spend more attention on our email than we spend time. Because every time a little alert pops into the corner of our screen, that's a cue that we should shift whatever we're doing to deal with the, the latest and the loudest thing that happened to come in. But when we compartmentalize email and pre-decide when we're going to devote our time, our attention and our energy to it. And by the way, you know, not check our email if we don't have the time, the attention or energy to deal with whatever might come in, we can reclaim a lot of the, the these uh, ingredients over the course of the day. Yeah, that's that's really good. I know some people who they just put artificial time limits on it. I'm only going to spend 30 days in e in e or 30 minutes a day in email, and if I don't get back to you, sorry, that's just the artificial limit that I've implemented there. But even that doesn't make the best use of those 30 minutes. And yeah. so, like you're saying, turning off notifications that would be a big deal. Only going into your email when you want to go in your email. And you've got a whole chapter on why the internet is killing your productivity <laughs> for is. people. It, yeah. You know, the notif if notifications. Honest, if I'm honest, I don't really like that rule where, you know, I, I only have 30 minutes to answer email every day. And my time is, is so precious that, you know, if, if your email isn't that important, I won't get, get around to it. Like some days, you know, even though I check my email at three, I, I, I get to inbox zero uh, at the end of every single day. And sometimes it takes me two or three hours to deal with everything that comes in. But I, I think, yeah, it, it, email is a weird thing because it kind of creates an imbalance, doesn't it? When somebody sends you an mm -hmm. email, it, it's like a, an expectational debt where they spent some time and attention on crafting a message to you. It might be a half-assed message, but it's a message nonetheless. And then kind of you have the hot potato and, you know, your hand is burning as, as you, you know, you have this debt to repay where you have to spend some of your time, attention and energy in return to get back to that person. But it, it's the main way that we communicate today. And, mm -hmm. you know, especially if we're working remotely, um, as, as so many of us do. So I think it's, it's a crucial part of our work. Um, but it's so crucial at the same time to keep in mind that our job is an email. Email is a task that supports our work. And it's so important to keep that in mind where our inbox isn't our to-do list and mm -hmm. our work isn't our email at, at the same time. Yeah, I heard somebody say that email is a to-do list that other people can write on <laughs> because yeah. it's a, it's a one-way communication medium. And people are telling you, I want you to do this. I want you to get this for me. 
And if you just say yes to everything, then your, your entire day is, is gone. But you talk about uh, productivity. Let me see if I can find the, the definition here. Yeah. You said being intentional. Um, but it was uh, meaning and impact. And if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of the emails that we respond to really don't have that meaning and impact behind them. And I'm curious, yeah. now that you have this, you've written the, the book, mm-hmm. what is the thing that keeps you going, that makes you excited to get up every single day? What is the meaning and the impact that you are trying to leave now that the book project is done? In terms of other people or in terms of myself? Just your work specifically, you know, yeah. you, you've got the, the life of productivity.com is, is your website. And there's some, some great articles on there. I saw one the other day about the, the 10 things for creatives, which I thought was a really cool idea. Yeah. Um, but what keeps you going in terms of like, okay, I, what, when you were doing all of these, these experiments, obviously the, the meaning and the intention behind this was I need to figure out what works, what doesn't so that I can put yeah. this in a book you know, putting words in your mouth, but help other people. Um, since people are the reason for productivity, like what, what is, what is the thing that provides meaning and intention for you now? It's helping other people be, because I, this is productivity is something I think everybody struggles with, but when a lot of people hear the word productivity, they kind of shut off because, you know, for, for the nerdy crowd, like, uh, Asian efficiency, folks (laughs) folks <laughs> and myself and you, you know, we, we love the word productivity and we get what it means, but a lot of people, they hear the word and they think about boiling your, their life down to a spreadsheet and becoming a robot. Mm. And so right now I'm, I'm really on a mission to allow people to see that productivity doesn't have to be cold and corporate and all about efficiency. Uh, it can actually be about living a more meaningful life and carving out time for what's actually meaningful to us and getting our work done in less time so we can have more freedom and flexibility in terms of the lives that we lead. And if you look at the constraints across people as, as, a, as a whole, you know, the, the average person, the, the biggest constraint that they have is their time. Because we only have so much time, whether it's every day, whether it's in general, um, and we need to make better use of that in order to live a meaningful life. And so that that's really my focus right now is how can I help other people use their limited time better? And how can I help them see this warmer and more human approach to productivity? And, you know, I, I do that by doing interviews and talks and stuff like that and writing um, on my site and working on, you know, the productivity project as well as other projects in that vein. And that's really my mission right now. And on a personal level, on kind of a more selfish level, it's to keep being curious about what I'm the most interested in. Because I, I didn't expect that I would get to this point. F- frankly, it's pretty bad. But I, I wake <laughs> up uh, with like um, a bunch of research papers that I'm dying to dig into. Uh, you know, those boring like academic journal articles where, you know, people read and re- write in language that you can't really understand and try to act all smart. Now I'm one of those people. Like I I read those things (laughs) for fun and and I I love it because you can uncover ideas that other people hadn't uh, written about before. And frankly, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the research that's coming out right now, if you kind of sip on the, on the fire hose of all the research that's uh, coming out on creativity and productivity and focus, it's remarkable how little of that makes its way into the public sphere. And Mm -hmm. part of it is because people who write about productivity, they don't want to sift through these, but I I find it fascinating. So, you know, uh, with my work as a whole, um, it's to make people curious about these ideas and hopefully help them out if I can, because frankly, the best productivity advice out there really does allow you to to live a better life and it allows you to accomplish more. But somebody has got to do the the grunt work of wading through all the BS out there, all the productivity porn and separating um, that from the real needles in the haystack, the the rules of three, um, the working around your biological prime time, the, you know, becoming more deliberate about simple things like checking your email. Um, they all filter, all, all these tactics filter into that central idea 
where we only have so much time and by using our limited time better and cultivating how much focus and energy we have at the same time, we can move our work and our lives forward that much more. Yeah, I, I really, I really like the way that you put that, and uh, it resonates with me too. I mean, with Asian efficiency, we've got our core values, which are on our website. They're the reason, honestly, that I'm at the company. The first one is mm-hmm. glow green, become the best version of yourself, so that number two, pull others up. It's it's all about helping people reach their full potential. And our definition of productivity is consistently taking action on your goals. Uh, same yeah. sort of idea of a lot of what you talk about in the book. Now. The way to do that, obviously, is these these little micro adjustments, these uh, these habits. We, the incremental we call it Kaizen. improvements. Yeah, yep. incremental improvements, exactly. So, I'm curious uh, if you would, would you walk us through your daily routine? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm a bit of a late riser re- relative to most people. I, I get up at about eight in the morning. <laughs> I, I get up. I eat breakfast. Um, that usually consists of a couple tablespoons of chia seeds mixed with water along with a huge chicken Caesar salad. I work out, I shower, I play the piano if it's not a workout day. Um, if, if I'm doing something that requires a good amount of creativity, I do that the first thing in the morning, um, such as writing, such as brainstorming, because first thing in the morning, our brain is a lot less inhibited um, than, than it is in other parts of the day. As a general rule, uh, we're the most productive when we have the most energy, and we're the most creative when we have the least amount of energy. Um, but you know that that's from kind of eight to ten. Um, then I work on the three daily tasks at ten, um, or anything that requires a, a significant energy and, and attention. Then I take a lunch. Uh, then I work on kind of the less important stuff that I can't delegate or get rid of, like conference calls and other kind of mindless or maintenance stuff like catching up on email. Um, you know, I check my email at three. Um, you know, I have a separate priority email that other people can kind of access that, that I work closely with every day. So I, I check that kind of throughout the day. Uh, lunch at 4 p.m., which is kind of weird, I guess. But then, then, you know, from five to eight, I keep working on my daily tasks. Then uh, at eight, I disconnect from the internet, shut off my cell phone, uh, from my computer. Um, and I set my three intentions for the next day so I can process them, um, you know, overnight and throughout the evening, um, and in the morning a little bit, and then personal time from about nine to midnight. And, you know, my, my daily schedule changes quite a bit and it's different every single time I check in on it, but this is kind of the one that allows me to to work around how much energy I have, to consider the daily constraints that I have, um, to spend as little time as I possibly can on things like email and other less important things. Um, and it lets me continually cultivate how much energy I have by taking frequent breaks, by breaking for lunch, by um, you know having some time in the morning to kind of ease into the day. Um, and it's productive and creative because it, it, it can kind of adopt as uh, as it needs to. Awesome. So uh, you have a big section in your book on on sleep, and you say you yeah. basically you're, it sounds like you're up till till midnight, and then you you get up again at at eight a.m. Um, yeah. Do so. Do you roughly get that eight hours of sleep every single night, or have you have you kind of figured out your your rhythm? I guess. And what, yeah, what does that look seven like? And a half. Yeah, it's seven and a half or eight hours. But, you know, d- d- disconnecting every evening helps more than anything. Because, you know, not only the whole blue light thing that, that keeps you up, but also it allows your mind to kind of rev down a little bit and uh, unfocus on the day and kind of ease out of the day and into the next one. And so I, th- that's, that's what I like to do. I, I like to go to bed around midnight. And this isn't like a fixed schedule. Sometimes I go to bed at 11, wake up at seven. Sometimes I go to bed at two or three in the morning and I wake up eight hours after that if I'm, you know, insanely productive or (laughs) into an idea uh, late into the night. So you adjust as you, as you go on, but sleep, it's kind of a boring tactic to talk about, isn't it? Because it's such common sense advice and every person on the planet 
has felt the negative impact that a sleep deficit has on us. You know, we have less energy, we can't focus, it affects our mental performance in every measurable way when we don't have enough sleep. But I, I see it as a way that we can exchange our time for energy. And the exchange rate is pretty good, up to seven and a half or eight hours. And most of us need that much sleep. And so I, I don't really compromise on that because it's such a such a crucial tactic. If I don't get enough sleep, and I, I got this pseudo-scientific rule. There's no science behind this whatsoever. Uh, I should forewarn you, but uh, I talk about it in the book that for every hour of sleep we miss out on, we lose at least an hour of productivity the next day. Um, and you know, for some of us, it'll be way more productivity that we'll lose. Some it might be a bit less. Who knows? Um, Actually, I think I messed up the rule. For every for every hour of sleep we miss out on, we we lose two hours of productivity the next day. That sounds more uh, accurate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A one for one, it'd be like, eh, no big deal. I'll I'll get less sleep. <laughs> but <laughs> it's um, I think it's a good kind of pseudo scientific rule to follow, where sleep is so essential because it affects our mental performance in in basically every single way. Awesome. Well, I know we've been going for a while here. I want to respect your time, but I will just encourage everybody to go pick up Chris's book, The Productivity Project. It is a, a, a great book. I benefited a lot from it. And even if you don't do all of the experiments, some of those I think are going to speak more to your situation than, than <laughs> others maybe, but there's definitely takeaways from every single one of them. So thank you for your time today, Chris. Thank you for putting in the time. Thank you for doing all the dirty work oh, for us. Oh, you <laughs> Figuring bet. all this stuff out so we can just read it and <laughs> apply it. We get As a new rule, I'm going to keep every interview I have to five sentences or less. I think. <laughs> do you think that'll work? Uh, maybe, but maybe you should do a, an experiment with that and let us know how yeah. it turns out. I don't have so much time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, th thanks so much for having me. And yeah. I'm happy you like the book too. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, is there anywhere else that you would want to send people to connect with you? I'm on Twitter. Do you get, do you do Twitter? I'm, I, uh, I am on Twitter. And I actually, that was another question I had was the oh. story behind the wiggle chicken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My Twitter idea is at wiggle chicken, I think. And this is kind of an embarrassing story to tell. Um, and I didn't foresee myself becoming a, a productivity expert and having this same, uh, Twitter handle, which is at wiggle chicken. Um, but I think it was, it was back in high school, way, way long ago, is one of the names of one of my Neopets. Did you ever play Neopets? <laughs> no, but I get the I get the struggle with picking a Twitter name that you don't really like <laughs> and being stuck with it because I'm at Bobblehead Joe. <laughs> oh man! So. And and now I got that little check mark on my Twitter profile, and I can't change my Twitter handle because I'll lose the check mark. <laughs> But it's this big uh, first world predicament that I'm in right. and nobody at all should feel sorry for me because <laughs> they just shouldn't. Um, that's my personal Twitter. My uh, productivity Twitter is at ALO productivity. And this site is a life of productivity.com. Um, and that's where I post once a week now. Uh, but the book is the productivity project and it's available everywhere. Awesome. Well, we'll put a link to the, the book, the, the blog, at Wiggle Chicken <laughs> and everything else uh, so. in the, the show notes. So if you want to go check that out, you can uh, just check out the show notes and there'll be links to everything. But uh, thanks again, Chris, for joining us. And uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for having me.